Are you willing to wait for it? In the musical Hamilton, uh, which you can watch on Disney Plus for free if you subscribe to Disney Plus, get a free subscription though. Quickly watch it. It's worth your time. Alexander Hamilton and his frenemy, Aaron Burr, foil each other throughout this whole musical and really their life. Hamilton is portrayed as a brilliant, brash, and impatient young man that seizes what he wants when he wants it, never hesitating, and eventually that leads to his demise. Aaron Burr, who eventually kills Hamilton, that's not a spoiler, that's American history, you should know it, <laughs> right? Uh, is portrayed as equally ambitious, equally capable as Hamilton, but Burr is more calculating, Burr is more patient, he's more willing to wait for love, he's more willing to wait for his opportunity, and he's just more willing to wait. Both are deeply flawed human beings, as you can imagine. And the comparison of two is best illustrated in the song sung by Burr, Wait For It. And so I just want you to listen to it here. Burr gets irritated and annoyed with Hamilton because of his bold and brashness. Right? Ha Hamilton is never willing to throw away his shot, as this musical says. But Burr is willing to wait. Burr is willing to wait to get what he wants. It's not that Burr doesn't want the same thing as Hamilton. It's that Burr is willing to wait. In fact, the irony is, is that Hamilton rushes to get what he wants, and then Burr kind of wants, he's willing to wait for Hamilton's judgment. And actually, Burr is the one that irony brings the judgment upon Hamilton, unjustly, of course. And I don't know if you know this, but Burr gets what, almost what he wants. Burr's almost the president of the United States. He just misses it because of his electoral tie, and the Congress votes him out. He becomes vice president. And in a crazy story of history, right, the vice president actually kills someone in a duel. Can you imagine that in American history? Can you imagine one of our politicians doing that now? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In this world, Jody said it, right, Jesus says the sun and the rain fall on the evil and the good. It doesn't discriminate. The just and the unjust. Love, life, and death, they do not discriminate amongst us. The point is that Burr makes it, it makes is that he's willing to be patient. That he's willing to wait for it, what he wants. And there must be a reason for, in his mind for the delay and for the delay in his satisfaction. He takes the time. Are you willing to wait for it? Now, we need to define what it is, don't we? Are we willing to wait for it? Are, are you willing to wait for that vaccine? I, I'm not. I'm like, let's go. I want it today. I am not a very patient person. And yet all the scripture begs us, calls out to us, be patient. Wait. All of life, I think God is teaching us a lesson. Are you willing to wait? And most of my time just said, No. I need now. So how does waiting for it relate to this passage in Habakkuk? In the first chapter, in the first chapter we heard last week, Habakkuk asked God for justice. He says, listen, my people, your people, Judah, they're horrible people. I need, 
I need, we need justice, Lord. How long will justice be? They need to be punished. You need to execute justice against your people. And God answers him. Wait. Wait for it. I'm doing a work, Habakkuk. Just wait for it. And then he says, right, God answers him. I'm doing a work, wait for it. And guess what? I'm rising a, a more evil people. People worse than them to come and issue my judgment upon them, my discipline, justice. Habakkuk then asks God, whoa, 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 whoa. What about them? When will you bring justice against Babylon? They're more evil people. When will you bring it against them? And then Habakkuk says to God, I will wait for your answer. I will wait for you, Habakkuk 2.1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now that's a very bold statement. I will wait for you, God. It's, I mean, it's confrontational. But here's the thing we'll give Habakkuk. At least he goes to God. At least he expects an answer. Habakkuk engages God, we learned last week, in a real and an honest relationship, right? Bringing the hard and difficult questions to him. That's what we ought to do. Asking God, why do you allow evil? Where is your justice? And he waits for God's answer. And then Habakkuk 2, 2-3, God answers his second complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. I, I want you to remember prior to this, right? Habakkuk says, my burden, the oracle that I saw. Right? It wasn't a word. It wasn't written down. This is what Habakkuk saw. And now it's the gift that God gives Habakkuk is you get to see all this. And now in the response to Habakkuk, he said, I want you to write this down. I want you to write it down for two full reasons. Right? There's a reason. right? So that he who may read it may run with it. So that people will know this and spread this news. I want everyone, not just you, Habakkuk, to know it. I want everyone to know it. And he says, I want you to write it on tablets. I want you, this is, this is a hearkening back to the stone tablets, right, on, on Mount Sinai, where God writes down the law. I want you to understand that this is a promise that is sealed in stone. It's a pretty big deal. Write it down. And then run. Make it plain. Run. Spread this news, Habakkuk. Make it known. If anyone who reads this, they need to tell it. And what's the news? Habakkuk, what is the news Habakkuk? God is telling Habakkuk. The news is justice will come. Write it down. And I want you to tell everyone. The good news is justice will come. But there's a caveat right there, he says. Wait for it. Wait for it. I have appointed the time. This is the good news. I have appointed the time that justice will come. It surely will come. It is a guarantee. It will not delay. You go, yes, it will not delay, yes. And then he says, wait for it. Like, what? 
What is it? Is it, is it now? Or is it, wait for it. In uh, C.S. Lewis, in the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, the, uh, the book Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, Aslan, who is the lion, right, is this God character, uh, has a conversation with Lucy. And Lucy, and because all they ever want to do when they're with Aslan is to stay with Aslan. And Aslan says, you know, we got to go. I got to go. You got you your job to do. I got to go. We'll be back together. And so uh, Aslan says to Lucy, do not look sad. We shall meet soon again. And Lucy says, please, Aslan, what do you call soon? And Aslan says, I call all times soon. Now, there's a certain comfort in that answer, but there's a certain frustration with that answer, too. You and I live that frustration every day. What do you mean you call all times soon? What do you mean? Justice is, is coming, and it sure, will not surely delay, but it will, you have to wait for it. Because here's the thing, right? God has a bigger perspective than all of us. He lives in eternity. And every moment is soon to him. And when we get this in the New Testament, he says, wait, I am coming soon. The kingdom is here now. And you're like, where is this kingdom? Where is this soon? Where are you, God? And yet he says, I'm here. I'm coming. God asks Habakkuk, will you wait for justice? I know it seems slow to you, but trust me, it's not slow to me. In the scope of my eternal plan, it's not slow. It's not slow. Will you wait for my plan? Will you wait for it? And then God it explains his judgment. He says, write this down. And he explains his judgment. He gives five woes against Babylon. But I want you to understand, these five woes are a good fair warning to us. And they're a good explanation of how we are to wait. How we are to live in our waiting right now. And I'm telling you, these five woes uh, kind of devastated me this week. And so my hope is they'll devastate you as well. <laughs> so be prepared. <laughs> Uh, they're good warnings for us. The first warning in verse 6b says, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to summarize it. I'm not going to read it, but it's going to be on the screen. Woe to those who take financial advantage of others. Woe to those who take financial advantage to others. Almost all these woes are self-oriented and not other-oriented, which begins to make a lot of sense of what we know. Right? And so eventually God's saying there is judgment for those who lend and borrow and make money on the backs of the poor. And we know that the law forbids lending money with interest. Right? We also know that the law includes in it a provision of grace that God is the one that grants and gives things. And so he creates the, he creates the year of Jubilee. He creates these years of seven, years of 50. So even when you sell your land, you get it back free. Because it's your land that God gave. And so there's kind of this, not, not just equally spreading the wealth out, but like, hey, this is the thing I gave you, right? And I know you're all broken, and so we're just going to have these resets every 50 years. And it's a benefit not just for the poor, but for those who are with, so they don't take advantage. It's for their own heart. God creates a system to protect the poor and protect the broken and protect the rich and protect the, us from harming and abusing the poor. 
And so in our lives, as we wait for justice, we ought to be people, and Scripture talks quite a bit about this. How do you care for those that can't care for themselves? How do you care for the poor? Period. Now, I've talked about, like, like, I don't talk much about my political agendas, but my one political agenda is how do we care for those that don't care, that can't care for themselves? And I don't care what party you're in, but that's the question I want you to ask. How do you care? And there's lots of good ways to approach that. Lots of good questions to ask about that. But if that, I want that to be the agenda of the people that are leading our country. How do you care for those that can't care for themselves? As a church, how do we individually step up and do that? I mean, that is our job. The second woe. Woe to those who gain or protect themselves at the expense of others. This is verse 9. I'm going to actually read verse 9 because uh, it, this one hit me the hardest. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Ugh. Man, I don't know about you, but a lot of my life is figuring out how to protect me and mine. It's figuring about how to protect me and mine. We know, well, do we have alarm systems? We have doors to lock. We have ways to make sure we invest the money safely, right? And so when, and when COVID happened, I'm going I'm to huddle together my family and make sure we are safe and everyone else I'm not really going to worry about right away. That's not mine to deal with. I mean, it goes on and on and on, right? It, be, it becomes initially about love of Self and not love of others. Or love of self becomes priority versus love of others. Do you know, you know, one of the things that we had during the summer, as many things that were fun 2020 things that happened, was the wildfires, right? Right? Didn't really affect us in much. But you, do you know that we have a whole industry, an insurance industry, where it is the job of the insurance industry to protect you and yours. And so the ultra-wealthy or just the wealthy, let's just put it that way, they, actually, insurance, they can actually get insurance companies that live in these fire areas, and they protect it. With a, it's a big amount of money, but they, what they do is they actually have their own insurance firefighters, private firefighting force. And so their job, the insurance industry has learned, that it's better to send this firefighting force out just to protect the properties that are insured by them than rather to pay out the damage that's going to be had. Now you think about this world in which some can hire their own private firefighters because they have the wealth and let their neighbor's house burn down and let all the other public firefighters fend for themselves. That, who's that looking af after? Self. Self. We, we've learned right this week in this, in this uh, paycheck protection program, right? Imagine the government screwing up a program, right? Uh, right? That, 50%, 50% of this uh, program, this the protect people's paycheck, went to 5% of the recipients, right? And most of those were not were large chains instead of mom and pop stores or small businesses, right? All these large businesses, they could have bared the brunt. They could have helped out because they had the resources to do it. But they're looking out for themselves and they're not worried about, oh, the other store, the small store, is not going to get it. Proverbs describes people as fools that disadvantage their community for the sake of protecting themselves and enriching themselves. All right, we know we live in increasing, in our, in our country and in this really world, increasing wealth disparity where the rich 
and the wealthy protect themselves and they enrich themselves and they get richer and richer and soon, right, the middle class really becomes the lower class because we're all the same class in comparison to the ultra Westy. And what's just fascinating is that we statistically know that the ultra Westy are, are worse givers percentage-wise as poorer people. It makes no sense. They have more to give and free to give. I'm not saying to tax them. I'm, not talking, I'm just talking about as free givers, right? If they come into church, they give less percentage-wise. We live in a country that, a world, we live in a world that is run by fear. Fear. We motivate by fear. All our commercials are based on fear to get us a, a fear response and for us to do something. And so we do. We, we, we know we're going to just have to read 1 John, right? That's the opposite of the gospel. That's not how we're supposed to be motivated. We're supposed to be motivated out of love. You, you might not like to hear this, but I want to say it because it goes into the same thing. It's not a political statement, but it's just a reality. This term law and order, this term law and order has been, and I, look, I'm a fan of law and I'm fond of order. I'm a Presbyterian. I, <laughs> this is who we are. We don't like chaos. But this term law and order, we know this because we know the political uh, campaigners have actually said that this is why they use this phrase all the way back to Nixon. It's to instill fear. It's to instill fear in people so they respond. This is how our politics, this is how everything runs. This is both parties. They try to instill fear so you vote the other way. This is not how the church ought to run, ever. This is not how the righteous ought to live, ever. We love, and our love motivates. It's not how God does. God doesn't motivate by fear, he motivates with love. That's the second woe. The third woe, woe to those who do things for their own glory and not God. I mean, come on, three for three for me, come on. Well, we, we build monuments and cities and policies for our own glory, churches, for our own glory and not for God or not for the benefit of, a, I mean, this is, this is the age-old story of the Tower of Babel. Well, we seek our own glory and not to seek the glory of God. Right? This is the danger of, of seeking out things that are not of the kingdom. Being overly patriotic. I'm not saying you shouldn't be patriotic or shouldn't be naturalistic, but you be overly naturalist, nationalistic or patriotic. There's a danger in there because you blind yourself to the realities of the kingdom and where your allegiance lies. We build and accomplish things and careers and it's about us and our reputation and our legacies. We build communities, we build economies, we build nations. Look, at we built a nation on the back of slavery for the glory of some people. Our glory, whatever it is, will vanish and disappear and be eternally forgotten. Why would you ever seek it out? It's fleeting. Habakkuk 2.14 gives this comparison. God says, it's such a beautiful metaphor. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's numerous. It's, 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 it's like saying, like a drop in the ocean. That's the comparison. All these drops of glory compared to, to what ours is. God's glory is numerous, immeasurable, indistinguishable. Will we wait for God's glory to be revealed? Will we wait for that justice? John 5, says, How can you believe? How can you have faith? How can you trust when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? I mean, what Jesus is saying is you can't trust God. You can't believe in me if you seek the applause and glory of other people. If you seek recognition here and now and you're not seeking my glory or, or trying to please me, you can never trust me by definition. You're trusting in something else. Woe to us that seek our own glory. Seeking praise from others instead of God. And the fourth woe. Man, are we, I hope you're right. You're seeing this. Woe to those that lust. All right, I mean, come on. I mean, what is going on here? Right? Woe, woe to those that lust after other things besides God. When we seek our pleasure instead of seeking to please God. Or you could actually say, when you seek to please and benefit, not just please them, but to benefit others, because that pleases God. When you seek out to help other people, that pleases God. God says, like, if, you, if, you seek, if you lust after things, if you seek after your own pleasures, right, you will receive shame, humility, instead of the glory and the pleasures you seek. I want you to hear him when he says, Habakkuk 2.16. You who have filled, you, who have fill, you, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Ugh. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. I just want you to understand what that's saying. God's saying, go ahead, lest after all those things, Drink it up. Enjoy your time. And what you're going to do is you're going to reveal that you were never mine. We're going to say, reveal your, that you were never baptized. You never belonged to me. I never knew you. That's, that's a hard word. And then it goes on to say, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Now what is that cup? What's the imagery of the cup? It's wrath. It's death. God said, death will come to you. Now, here's a hint. Here's a hint, right? There's the gospel. Right? There's the gospel. Habakkuk is pointing to the gospel because who drinks the cup for us? Jesus drinks the cup for us so we don't have to because he knows we all deserve death. We all deserve this because this is all of us who we are. We all deserve the justice that we demand, justice that we can't wait for. And then the fifth woe. Woe to those that seek other gods besides God. All right. Who's 100% on this quiz? Right? <laughs> All right, good. Okay, you're with me on this one. Right. Uh, woe to those that just seek after other things to be Lord in their life. I mean, we don't ever say it that way, but that's the reality. We live it that way. If we, including self, because that's usually in our culture who our Lord is. It's our own self, that we are self-determined, self can choose anything we want and do whatever we want. 
and we're Lord. Habakkuk 2.19 says, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone. Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath in it at all. But God is saying, look at God's look, all your idols, like he's literally talking about physical idols, but here's the reality. All our idols, all the things we think are Lord in our life, they are dead things. If you trust in yourself, if you trust in your own ability, here's a clue. You are dead. And you are trusting in a dead thing. Or you're trusting in a dying thing. Because that's our standing. Because we are evil. We are broken. And if we make ourselves idols, God is saying to you, why would you trust in such a dead thing? I, I want you, did, I, did you notice in here the silent things in these first two chapters? How God uses silence? Right, in Habakkuk, the first one, Habakkuk starts complaining about God's silence in the injustice. And this is the first chapter. Right, Habakkuk complains like, God, why are you silent? And then it moves to the beginning of chapter 2, right, where Habakkuk says, I will be silent until you answer. And then God's woes will turn to silent, like God's woes right in this last one, it says, look at you turn to silent and dead things, you fools. Woe to you. And then the last thing in this move to silence, it wraps this all up, Habakkuk 2.20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth keep silence before him. Right, so it's, why are you silent? I'm going to keep silent, and then I'm going to turn to dead things that are silent things, and God speaks. And God speaks, and he silenced Habakkuk. He silences the whole world. He pronounces his judgment. He pronounces his justice, and God will silence us. God will humble us. God's wisdom and his judgment and his justice will silence any complaint and any impatience with him. And then here's the amazing thing. Is that we actually have hindsight because this happened long ago. And God's justice in which he promised in these, these woes, they were fulfilled. They were fulfilled on Babylon. Right? I, I told you, right, this was written before 605 B.C., right? I mean, 646. 05 BC, before the Babylonians, right? He predict God's telling him, this is what's going to happen to Habakkuk. And then we know, right, that those, those years, and then in 539, the Babylonians fell to the Persians. And all this judgment came upon them. God brought in the Babylonians to bring discipline and to judge his people, and then God brings in the Persians to judge the Babylonians. We know this happens. Habakkuk and many of the Psalms in the Old Testament ask, How long, O Lord, how long will your justice be? How long do we have to wait? And like Habakkuk, we come to God with that same complaint, don't we? How long, Lord? How long do we have to wait? We see these horrific injustices in the world. We know the despair in part and we know the darkness even in ourselves, and we ask, where is your justice, God? And we could just look back in this past year in our own country. Where is your justice? Where is the justice? And when will it be, Lord? 
And the answer God gives us time and time again is this. Wait for it. Wait for it. It, it doesn't mean we, there's, no, it, there's no action in this world. That's not what he's saying, right? But he's saying, my justice, the ultimate justice, right? The eternal justice. Wait for it. Wait for it. It may seem slow, but it will surely come in verse 3. And God says, judgment will come. 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10. Hear this. God says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. And justice is a promise, by the way. As some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any, any of you, that's the antecedent of any is you, the people he's writing to you, any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly body will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are being done will be exposed. Did you hear that? Judgment will come. It is delayed. Why? Why is it delayed? Why do we have to wait for it? Because waiting is grace. You don't want judgment now. And if you did, there's something wrong with you. You don't have God's heart. Waiting equals grace. God is giving us time and opportunity to repent, to turn back to him, to turn to his way. Grace is for us and grace is for others, those that haven't repented yet. Our prayer is to be, God, bring justice right now upon them. Our prayers to God, turn their hearts back to you. Because his waiting is grace, and it may seem slow to us, but God has a plan and has a reason. In our demand for justice, we overlook God's grace for others. Love is patient. It is not slow. I hope you understand the difference in that. Are you willing to wait for it? Are you willing to wait for God's justice? Are you willing to live in grace are you willing to be graced filled for others and so the question really that really ends because i haven't hit the, the real point of habakkuk yet and two that was all just the warm-up for this main course so how do we operate in this waiting right we gave a little bit of how, what not to do in the woes in this period of grace how do we operate in this waiting period Right, we just learned what not to do. How do we live in this moment of despair, death, and injustice? Habakkuk 2.4 says, But the righteous shall live by faith. And I hope that's familiar to you. I hope it rings to, to your heart. Because it's quoted three times in the New Testament. This is a big deal. This is a big verse. And so I, I have to ask you the question, who is the righteous? Who is the righteous? So, I mean, because I don't connect with being righteous. I don't know about you, but I do not identify with being righteous. But Psalm 32.1 says, the whole psalm, I'm just going to hit a couple of verses here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
And and verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I do not cover my iniquity, I said. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all your upright in heart. Did you see what Psalm 32 said? What it just did? The forgiven are the righteous. The forgiven are the righteous. And you're forgiven not in your own doing and not in your own act. It's in spite of who you are. You are forgiven. I mean, you could also say in here, right, it was the, the repentant because that's part of forgiveness are the righteous. Then this verse begins to make a lot more sense to me because you could say, and just whatever, but, but the forgiven shall live by faith because you and I are righteous because we're forgiven. We are righteous because Christ gives us his righteousness and takes away our unrighteousness. That makes a lot more, more sense to me. So we shall live in this moment, in this season, in this circumstance, in this injustice by faith. Right? And in this verse, right, which is read and is quoted in, in Romans, this is a big verse that helps Martin Luther understand the justification by faith. This changes. Martin Luther, this change, just, we're here because Martin Luther got an a, a understanding from this, from God. And we live in the same understanding. Major influence is vision mark. Romans 1, 17, 4, and it, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this word, faith, this uh, uh, pistis is what this word is in Greek. It really has three different uh, ranges of meaning. And this is really important to understand. Otherwise, we'll miss the point of what it means. And so there's a lot of, if you focus only on one, you will, you will miss the entirety of the, uh, the gospel. And so the one that we're probably most aware of this, right, is uh, faith means right, a belief or adherence to the word or to a certain knowledge, right? So in John, we've learned that all knowledge comes through, is on the basis of faith. Right? It's just how things are made in this creation. But So I believe in a certain things. Right? I, we believe that Jesus rose and died again. We have faith in that knowledge, in that truth. Right? That's one aspect of how faith is used. And it's used in this way in these passages. The second aspect is we, we trust. You trust in an object or a person or thing. So we trust in God. We trust in Jesus. We rely on him, right? We have faith in certain knowledge and certain beliefs of what he has accomplished and what he's done, aspect, facts of those things, right? And then we trust in him, in, the, in his person, right? And the third aspect is it actually can be translated as faithfulness, the act of belief. And once you begin to understand this range of meanings, right, then the, there's a whole uh, argument of faith versus works becomes nonsense because we understand that faith by itself and its definition actually anticipates and expects an act because there are faithful actions that relate to your knowledge and to your trust. All three are in play here, but the one I really want to focus on, what I really think is going to be helpful for us, is the quotation in Hebrews. It's, it's quoted in Galatians 2, but the quote, uh, quotation in Hebrews, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous endure patiently wait by faith. In Hebrews 10, 37, 38. For yet a little while, there it is again. There's that soon. <laughs> the coming one will come and will not delay. 
but my righteous one shall live by faith. Interesting here. Look, look what he just did there. Right now, now the righteous one, is, it's a person because you understand the context of what's going on in here in Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 11, 12, which I'll explain in a moment. It's talking about Jesus, right? And we are the righteous and forgiven because we're in Jesus. That's the whole thrust of the New Testament, that we are connected and uh, include into Jesus, right? But my righteous ones shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Right? That's, that's the end of Hebrews 10, which almost the next couple verses. What is Hebrews 11.1? 1? It's a famous verse, right? What does it say? Now faith, which is talking about, right? Righteous shall live by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Right? This is, that's actually that aspect to a certain knowledge, right? That aspect of faith. But when then, what does the all of chapter 11 talk about? It's talking about one of our um, fathers of our faith, Abraham and Moses, and one after another, about how they had to endure and how they had to wait in faith and how they had to, to live this and out. It's, right, this is, it's constantly endure, endure, endure in faithfulness. This is what this, that's that third aspect of that word. Right? They were, it did not come quickly for any of them. The story is long and drawn out, and they have to endure in their circumstances. And, they're, of course, they're included in this chapter of faith. And then chapter 12 hits, and the first two verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the ones we quoted and others that we can say, let us also lay aside every weight, every burden, and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you hear that? Do you understand now what this third aspect of faith is? It's this is enduring weight of this incredible patience that despite your circumstance, Habakkuk, despite the injustice around you, trust me, second aspect of faith, I will bring my justice. Can you faithfully wait? Can you faithfully wait? The righteous live by faith. The righteous patiently endure the circumstances of injustice. Why? Because we know it's actually God's grace. And how do we endure in this moment? How do we faithfully endure? It says it right there. We set our eyes on Jesus. We set our eyes on the cross because this is what Jesus did. He patiently endured while he was on earth. He, he set us. He did the endurance for us because he died for us. Did that at the cross. We endure because he is righteous. He forgives. And he makes us righteousness. And the righteous, by definition, by his, his work, not our work, will endure. I want you to hear that very clearly, right? This is not like, man, i got to endure to be righteous. That's not what it's saying. He's saying, by definition, because Christ has made you righteous, because he's forgiven you, because he went to the cross, you will endure. 
faith is the fruit of grace that God gives. Right? You are saved by grace, and it's through faith. But the faith is the fruit of the grace that he gives you. That's so important to understand. That the faith is not your own doing. It's like, man, I've got to muster up all this faith. I'm like, hey, look at verse in Romans 1, right? Faith upon faith, it grows. Right? But this is God's work in you. By definition, you will endure. And so I'm, this word today is just to remind you, yes, there's injustice. Yes, there's pain. Yes, your circumstances are horrible. But wait. Faithfully endure. God has promised and he will fulfill it. He will bring his justice. And the good news is, right, like, we are spared his justice. We are spared his justice because Christ takes the justice for us. And so that's, that's, that's the pivot point in the world, right? It's, it's the cross. Either, either we bear the justice one day or he bears it for us, and that's the grace. Will we patiently endure in that? The mechanism is faith. We're saved by grace. The mechanism is faith, which is an assertion to a certain belief, which is a trusting in the person of who God is, which is enduring the act of our trust. And that one day soon, our salvation will be in full and justice will be in full. Unlike Burr, who waited for his time, who brooded and plotted and planned in worldly patience, who eventually enacted his own justice, we wait in grace. We wait in grace for the coming salvation. We wait in grace for the justice of God. The salvation that was given to us at the cross where, where, at the cross where, where justice and mercy interact and intercede and intersect. Where grace intersects with God's justice. One and the same. It's an amazing thing. We will endure these days, these moments, by looking to Jesus. Who endured the cross for us. We will endure because he endured. Are you willing to wait for it? Let us endure in faith and wait for it. Knowing that waiting is part of God's grace for us and for others. Wait for it. Let's pray.